Hello everyone and welcome to the Movie Shed Podcast. I'm of course your cinema-loving, shed-dwelling host, Mike. Whew, let's see. What is the topic for today? 80s-style films in today's movie. Movie age. Hmm. Yeah, you know, when I wrote this down, I, I had been noticing quite a lot, actually, of a number of the stylistic changes that some movies have been, you know, kind of emulating, so to say, from 80s films. And granted, most of these were in fact found in independent films. A lot of indie films were kind of reaching back to the 1980s to kind of bring that back. But in a certain degree a lot of film studios were reaching back into the 80s to do a lot of remakes and give it, you know, a nice clean polishing up for the new millennium. And we saw how well those did. Need we forget the RoboCop remake, the Total Recall remake, the Ghostbusters remake? Not well. Not well at all. The Conan Barbarian remake was meh. It was a meh, <laughs> in my opinion. But what what is the kind of driving force here? And there is one, believe it or not. Naturally, the various film studios, if we're we have to kind of separate here, uh, from independent filmmakers, the reason they're kind of reaching back for that '80s trip one is a bit of nostalgia not only for themselves, but also for the audience they're hoping to gain. They're thinking that with their film, with a kind of, a bit of a 80s veneer, or an 80s stylization, that uh, they're, they're trying to emulate much better films. And, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Independent films are always a bit iffy. You never quite know the quality of what you're going to be getting. It really depends solely on the writers and the directors involved. Sometimes gems. Sometimes garbage. Now, shifting over to the main studios, the big studios, why they're doing it, well, it's pretty cynical. It's to make money. Clearly, they have a property that they own, and they need to do something with it because... Well, they don't have any ideas. And new ideas could be costly. They could be expensive. Who wants the expense and the risk of making something brand new, unknown, groundbreaking? These are terrifying concepts to a movie executive. They don't want new and exciting or groundbreaking because that invites risk. It's a big financial risk. We can't have big financial risks. We need proven money makers. Hence why they go back to the old stuff, to the old IPs, and try to bring them back with a new coat of paint. It's the idea of selling us the same thing twice. We sold you RoboCop once. Let's see if we can sell you RoboCop again. It's that kind of mindset. 
people often, you know, they when they when we when we have you know various discussions talking about movies, and everyone always brings up that same thing. It's like, why is it that no studio is willing to do something new? And I have to say, well, that depends on what you mean by studio. If you're talking about the main studios, there's a reason. It's money. They don't want to spend money on new things because it's risky. If it's risky, it's possible it won't make any money. So they won't do it. But if you're talking about indie films, oh, they'll do it. They'll, they do it all the time. It, it's always a big risk. That's really the difference in, in the big studios in their world they are risk averse they're a multi multi-billion dollar industry they can't and i mean can't risk their standing their financial stakeholders can't risk the money to do something off the wall and interesting and new and fresh because it's risky and it's a good chance that it will just flop and if that happens, well, your money's gone. You're not getting it back. But with the indie scene, all there's no holds barred here. It, they live in a world of risk. So what's what's stopping you from making something truly new and fresh and off the wall, whether it's a financial success or not, is kind of up in the air anyway. Why not? So that really is the answer that I have to give to my friends when they ask me, you know, hey, why is it that they always do this? Well, that's why. The main studios, they don't like risk, and old stuff has a built-in audience. It's pretty clear. I mean, that's why this slow-moving train wreck that is Amazon's Lord of the Rings, that's why it's going through all of its, you know, phases. Is it going to be a huge failure is still up in the air. It could still end up being a mediocre show. Or it could end up being a huge disaster. Who knows at this point? No one's seen anything. Though, there are plenty of red flags. But the reason they went there is because you had a trilogy of movies by Peter Jackson that did exceedingly well. I mean really well, financially. So here is a property. It is hot. It is a hot property. And they will pounce on it. Amazon has been hungry for their own Game of Thrones ever since Game of Thrones came out and began to really hoover in the viewership. And Bezos, and by extension the board of directors at Amazon, have been desperate for their own. Netflix is desperate for their own, too. That's why they keep bringing on new shows and getting rid of them, all in the hopes of finding the one. Uh, the Witcher series that they have, they hope that was the one, and it's not. It's an okay show, at best. In my opinion, it's just okay. Yeah, I've seen some of it, and yeah, I'm not that impressed. The, I still can't get over the melted garbage bag armor for the Nilfgaardians. But that's me. As far as far as that goes. So, you see, everyone is, is all trying to play catch-up right now. 
They still are. Because HBO came out with Game of Thrones, it was a huge game changer for everybody. So now they're really, really cooking and trying to make make it this sort of thing work. Netflix went the same way, looking for a, a literary property. One that was popular. Well, technically, the literary property of The Witcher isn't that popular. Not, re- not when you can kind of compare it to A Song of Ice and Fire. So, but, you know, Song of Ice and Fire did edge it out, but only just. So, and The Witcher has a lot more brand appeal because of the video games. So... Netflix seemed like it had a good formula, and it, they stumbled that one. They stumbled it pretty badly. I'm not saying Henry Cavill was actually bad as Geralt. He actually was pretty good. It's kind of everything else in there. And then you have Lord of the Rings. Again, they're reaching back to pull in that audience again. Lord, the Lord of the Rings for Amazon, they're hoping that this... This is the great silver bullet that's going to finally kill the specter that is the Game of Thrones, you know, phenomenon. That this is going to be theirs, and no, I don't think it is. I I honestly, if you want my honest opinion on the Lord of the Rings thing, you know, I've had episodes talking about it for ever since it was announced, and I've had my misgivings ever ever since the beginning. Mainly because in this particular environment, I really think that they have two showrunners who have no idea what the hell they're doing. And this smacks of season eight of Game of Thrones. And we all remember how well that went over. So, this is going to be season eight of Game of Thrones in season one. That's my prediction. But this is kind of off-topic, because I'm talking about 80s style. Uh, Yes and no. It all kind of boils together. You see, the thing is, is that every major studio, and Amazon's going to have to be included with this, along with Netflix, is that they're looking for something that has a built-in audience. This is the reason why they're looking back. Why aren't they looking back to, like, the... 50s, the 60s, and the 70s? Well, they kind of are, and they kind of aren't. The only time that they're going to reach that far back to any of those properties, if they still hold them, and that's a big question, if they still hold them, is how successful they were back then. Because if they were, like, really successful, they will. Case in point, Star Wars and Disney. Remember, the very first Star Wars film, A New Hope, came out in the late 70s. The rest came out in the 80s, true. But the first one, late 70s. It came out in theaters. It wasn't even called A New Hope then, it was just Star Wars. I digress. This is what's... This is the mindset here. You know, was there anything from the 50s and 60s, film-wise, that really was like, yeah... Uh, there you you might think no that's not possible there weren't that many eh, not exactly you see there might have been a little film called 
uh, House on Haunted Hill, perhaps. You might have heard of it. Thirteen Ghosts, perhaps you might have heard of those. Those are both remakes from films from the 60s. Uh-huh. And those came out in the 90s, early 2000s, somewhere around there. There was like a, a brief little spurt for some of those, but they didn't work out because, well, they tried to add in that era's attitude and design aesthetic. And it doesn't work. Not really. A lot of these films, they're, they're classics for a reason. They're classics because they were made of their time, but that kind of design was set almost to be timeless. They... See, this is where I do believe studios really screw up. When you look at Total Recall, the original from the 1980s, did it follow its source material? No, not even close. It was such a loose adaptation, it's a shock that it had anything to do with any of that story. You know, we'll sell you dreams wholesale. It has hardly anything to do with it. The short story itself is actually pretty dense and quite a... It's quite a mystery. I mean, to the point where the reader and the character himself has no idea, you know, whether or not he's actually experienced this or not. It's left up in the air. Whereas the film, it has... It's pretty definite. You know, that you could point out a few things that maybe, maybe not, but... Eh. Same with Robocop. It was very much a product of its time. That's... And that's what made them, I do believe, very poignant for that period. Because it was well understood. When you take something, that kind of message from... Well, Recall's really known just for it being cheesy. And everyone loves that because it's such a cheesy film. You go around and turn it into some kind of born identity James Bond-esque kind of escapade and it loses its charm in such a huge way it really does Robocop was very much a a tale of you know violent crime and the links that the, the links that a corporation will go to to meet its particular agenda as well as the ruthlessness of the businessmen involved. I mean, there, there was a lot of layers here. It wasn't just a action, an action-packed shoot-em-up for the fun. For the fun and funsies. It really wasn't. It, it had some serious notes. And they tried to redo that with today's sensibilities, because, you know, more butts and seats, so from an R to a PG-13, and tried to really amp up their own personal messaging, which, you know, flopped. And look, I have nothing against any of the actors involved in any of these projects. It's really the writers and the directors who are at fault here. As well as, you know, in some cases, studio interference. All of this kind of boil boils down to... I have a project, and I need butts and seats... We reach back to an old IP because it has a built-in audience. It's, it sounds very clinical and very cynical, but that's how it works. 
I hate to burst the bubble, but that's, there is no such thing as movie magic, not anymore. At least not in the studios. Independent films, that kind of movie-making magic still exists. But it's, much like anything else, it's fragile. You know, movie-making is, in my opinion, an art form. And you should be allowed to create. But financial considerations involved do make it difficult. So you can get really creative on a fairly small budget. I mean, look at the movie Phantasm. It was made on a budget that was considered less than a shoestring. I mean, they made it for 100000 bucks. It was insane how low that budget was for a film. And yet somehow pulled it off. Was it a super smash hit? No. Was it a cult classic? Yes. It still exists. And had, you know, thriving sequels thereafter. Uh, And others failed miserably. Uh, Deathbed, the bed that eats. I get what the filmmaker was really trying, and the story of how it got out into the wild is far more fascinating than the film itself. But he was trying something very artsy and very creative. You gotta give him that. <sighs> really, this should have been, instead of, you know, the asking of a, you know, 80s-style films in today's movie age, it should have really been answering the question of why is it that movies, that movie makers constantly recycle stuff? Eh... I guess they both kind of work. But really, that's what it boils down to. It really does. It's a bit of a downer on this one. Mainly because eh, I'm raining on parades here, but eh, it is what it is. Sure, it's not terribly funny or exciting. It's reality, and reality rarely is. Well, I think I'm going to end today. It's going to be it for me. So... It's time to close up the old shed, but I will see y'all next time.